I'm a huge believer in failure. I'm a huge believer in embracing failure as a strategy and surviving failure as a business tactic. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I speak with Craig Swanson. Craig has a fascinating story. He has started over 10 companies, and all of those are still running today. One of those is Creative Live, which ended up raising over $50 million. Um, a most recent company that he took from idea to over seven figures in the past year. Another one he just sold for an eight-figure exit. His resume is very impressive. And so in this episode, we talk about you know his criteria for doing something very, very specific and niche, which is selling e-products on the back of partnering with an influencer with a big reach. And he gives the playbook on how he does that. He talks about failures he's had. He talks about success stories. And he gets really tactical on how he pulled this off. What's even more fascinating is he talks about his framework for how he separates his life and work, how he's very risk adverse with his personal finances. But when it comes to his business finances, the guardrails he gives to run big experiments and to write big checks for those experiments. And then at the very end, actually have him give some advice for myself and growth it. If we were to sell an e-product, that's a course or a book, um, what would that be? And honestly, he gave something that we're going to act on. I'm, I'm pretty excited about, but really hope you enjoy this conversation with Craig. I, I learned a lot. So here we go. All right, so I'm really excited to have Craig Swanson on. Craig is one of those people where we've interacted just a few times, but I, I feel like within five minutes, I realized he was 10x smarter than me, and I learned something every minute we talk, and it, it, it's really fun. And we actually met through a kind of entrepreneurship group out here in Seattle, and he is very humble, but seeing everything he's done has been really exciting. But Craig, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jim. This has been a lot of fun. And honestly, I have felt intimidated talking to you just because of the clients you have and the type of work you do. I feel anything but like the smartest person in the room on any of our conversations. Well, I will disagree with you on that, but that's super nice to say. So, you know, even before we get in, you have such an interesting background. Could you please provide just a little background on yourself and how it's kind of led to what you do today, which we're going to get into? Yeah. So I'll just kind of give the the short version that we can go deeper if anything comes up. So I actually started my first business when I was 18, where I started my first business that I then ran for 22 years, which was an IT company supporting advertising agencies, design firms, and other creative agencies in the Seattle area. I could do it at 18 because the computers we were supporting were brand new. I, I had a, I was kind of drawn to it. I dropped out of high school and college consecutively. And my, most of my career has been as a support structure for creatives, creative professionals, basically supporting the businesses in different ways. That IT business over the course of 20, 20 years and change, I slowly evolved it to a place where it was running without me. And, and I would say in like the last seven years, I was genuinely a small business owner as opposed to one of the consultants out doing the work. And, and sorry, is that business still going today? It is actually. So 
in when when I started Creative Live, which will come in a moment, we I sold it to past employees, and they are still running it today. Last time I checked, I think I've been involved in starting 10 companies, and I think all 10 companies are still functioning in some form today. You deserve a trophy or something yeah. for that. That's impressive. But sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah. So I got it to a place where it was running itself, and as kind of a side project for myself, I started creating a training company. I hired a really great trainer that I knew, and we started basically incrementing around different ways of providing training to those same creatives that I had been working with for years. And then the, the economy collapsed and I could no longer support this training company. And so we knew we needed to get rid of the training company. Before I did that, I did one last like kind of Hail Mary. We did a free course for as many people as we could get in. We'd figure out how to charge them later. But I just wanted to at least go out by having a, a ton of people show up and learn something. That course effectively was what became the Creative Life business model. And that course made $30,000 off of the first, the first 10 weeks, which isn't a lot by my standards today, but, but by the standards at the time, that was probably a year's worth of revenue based on how that training company was going in, internally. We then basically doubled down on that, spent about a year learning from that. And then I launched Creative Live with Chase Jarvis as a co-founder in 2010. That became an online training company. We ended up growing like, like tremendously. We, I think we, we did, we did over a million dollars in revenue in the first year. We took, we took funding in our second year and pretty much it just exploded from there. I think by the, by the fourth year, we were at 120 employees. We had offices in Seattle and San Francisco. And at that point, Chase came, stepped up to become CEO. I exited around 2015, which which brings us to where I am today. And can you talk about the scale of Creative Live? Because it's pretty impressive. You, you're doing courses where Tim Ferriss is doing the course. And how much did you raise? Or like, can you even speak to how, like, how big the valuation was? So I don't think I can speak to how big the valuation was. I don't think that's public. But the raise is public. So in, I, so in two rounds with several tranches, I believe we raised over somewhere between 45 to $50 million. It's It's all on all... I mean, it's all public. We could, we, you can pull it up. I don't know the exact number. The important ones, the first raise was $8 million in 2012 that basically got the process started. That, that's amazing. So kind of two completely different ri rides, a bootstrapped IT company that runs itself and is still going today. The second one is this kind of, at a time, the darling of Silicon Valley, you're raising $50 million and you're going to the moon, right? And so... You've seen both of these journeys in these paths. And what's so interesting is like what you've settled on today. So now I don't even know how to classify what you do. You're kind of this one man fund, not a VC fund, but also like this growth team. Can you talk about or just laying out like what you do today? Because I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to like you have had some exits. You've had some very nice wins that have allowed you to like set your family up for success. And you've kind of made this new structure in how you go about business. Can you talk about? That? Yeah. So, I, I, what you what you said is really what I struggle with is what do I call this? Because it's got elements of a VC, it's got elements of like a freelance growth team, it's got elements of angel funding, it's got all these different pieces. So, the, the short version is, what I do is I have I effectively partner with people 
that have a large audience and help them build digital products and basically create their own unique platform. So kind of the thesis around that is for the right partner, we can come in and generally scale someone up to above a million dollars in the first year and then aspirationally build a growth track to get them to five, six, 10 million. Like, like what happens after that first million really is more about execution and the type of team we can pull together. And in terms of what we're looking for, what I'm looking for in a partner is someone that has a really large and successful addressable following already. So they've got more than 250,000 people on social media or email or some type of fashion where they have the ability to directly communicate with a large number of people. They have already had some success with digital sales in some form. So they've sold in the range of 100,000 to $250,000 in digital goods of some form in the last couple of years. And they have some element of being mission-driven. And, and, and what that mission is, is a little bit open, but I just find that, that I really tend to need people to be um, pushing for something larger than just a business that is functional. And then in terms of like the fit for us, they need to have some missing pieces. They need to have some missing pieces that we can fill in. So that can either be video production, that can be technical, that can be legal and financial. That can be money. And just in general, I'd kind of boil a lot of that down to just experience. Like there's a pattern recognition and a comfort zone that comes from having created and sold a lot of digital goods over the years. I think last time I tallied it up, companies I've helped build, I think we're somewhere between, I think about $75 million in digital goods have been sold in companies that I have created. During the early growth phase of Creative Live, my monthly target was a million dollars. And so there's just this pattern recognition that comes from doing that, where if you're brand new to it and you see an opportunity to leap, a lot of times people don't know where to leap and they'll miss, they'll, they'll miss that jump. And then I guess, the, I guess the last criteria is they are at a place that they're ready to partner because a lot of people that have built this type of social media following, even if they have missing pieces, they may not be at a place that they want to partner with someone like me. I love how, you know, it, it's so specific because like selfishly, I'm trying to figure out like with our startup studio, what is our, for lack of a better phrase, investment thesis or criteria. And you're like, hey, I've done this playbook before at Creative Live. You've have 10 companies I, and I, I, I'm not sure how much you can disclose, but like we've talked offline and like this has worked very well, whether it's to generate cash or to get an exit that is very, very meaningful. So you have this playbook. And so to kind of say it back, it's finding a person that has a significant following over like a quarter million where they have an audience that would pay for what they want. So maybe that's in photography, that's in fitness or some other category. And it's like the right time to partner. And when I hear that, it's like, man, you're really threading a needle, but also means when you see what you want, it's just a no-brainer. You know that this could be something really special. I mean, do you ever get shiny object syndrome where you're like, hey, I have these skills and man, I can apply it to this or to that. Like, how do you stay disciplined on just focusing on that? Well, okay, so I have massive shiny object syndrome. I'm also a creator. So I, I, one of the challenges I had running my small business, probably about halfway through my small business, I made peace with this is I come up with more ideas than I can ever execute on. And so I would be driving everybody in my company crazy because I would constantly be coming up with new ideas. 
there is a there's a path I've given myself to help me avoid my own instincts for shiny object syndrome, which is a really simple one. I effectively, when I am entering into a new area or, or deciding on a major thing I'm going to do, I create a list of 101 ideas around a concept before I actually commit to anything. So I go through, I try to separate ideation from commitment to activity. And I try to avoid committing to an idea while I'm still in love with it. I prefer to let the love pass and then come back and evaluate it without that passion I have when the idea first occurs to me. So you don't do what I do is where you think you have lightning in a bottle and you immediately go to do GoDaddy and try and buy the domain. It sounds like you're a little oh, more oh, thoughtful. Oh, I buy all the domains. Oh, trust me. I, I, I buy all the domains. And I don't stick with just the domains that are available. My idea, when I, my 101 idea list is filled with domain research and pricing for all the domains that are for sale on the, on the secondary market. And I'll, I will say any domain that is below $5,000 for a name that's really good for something I want feels cheap these days. Jeez. Yeah, that's the world we live in. Um, well, well, that's super impressive. And I mean, I, I'd love to get into some examples because I think giving color will help people see like how thoughtful you are in this approach. Like I'd love to talk about if I'm saying, all right, is it, is it Kaiser Fit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kaiser Fit. Th this is a concept that like from idea to finding the partnership, you were able to get that essentially to seven figures in a very short time frame. Can you kind of walk through like the journey of that partnership and how that's worked? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually to even to kick that off, I can think I can phrase a little bit about how I set up my own life for this investing life I'm in. Yeah. When I exited from creative live and when I was basically setting up the next phase of my life, we had a lot of conversations with my wife. We had a lot of conversations about what we need for the family. And I'm so sorry to interrupt, Craig. Like, when you say exit, just so people know, like, are you exiting? And is that at a point where you've stumbled into, not stumbled, you've earned, but like hit this level of income or wealth where you're looking to do what's next? Or had that not come yet? There's been a mix. There's been a mix. So without getting to, without getting to too many details, this was not the company exiting. So, so Creative Live actually was acquired this year. So this year in 2000, last year, 2021. But when we took investment, there were some opportunities to take a little bit of money off the table. And, and, and I did take advantage of that enough to create a foundation for my family and to make life easier. And, and I will say at one point, you know, we had the traditional startup blackboard with, you know, where we are in, in the lower left and a billion dollars in the upper right. And we were talking about basically at what, what stages different people were needing for themselves and where they, how much risk they wanted. For me, there was always a level of risk that was maybe a lower than some of the other people that were looking at that board because one of my priorities was to take care of some family members. But I will say, so at, at this point, when I'm, when I'm looking at my future, I do have, I, I have an, enough that the family is taken care of. And what I did is I set aside $250,000 to basically fund my next, my next chapter. And I'm a huge believer in failure. I'm a huge believer in embracing failure as a strategy and surviving failure as a business tactic. And so rather than looking at that as $250,000 to invest in my next project, what I viewed that at and talked it out with my wife was it was five $50,000 bets to fund the startup phase of future of five potential future projects. And so that kind of sets the groundwork. And, and then um, 
several years later is when I was working with Kaiser, but I still have that mentality. I still got a rolling fund of $250,000 for a series of $50,000 bets. So I want to pause on this because this is a really good framework where you have this like transition in your career. You were able to set the foundation for like money for your family and what you need. So you're not just like taking food off the table. And then you're like, here's this, this, this pot, this 250 K pot to make five bets. Did you also give yourself a time frame on when you wanted to do that? Or was it more like, hey, if this works, this allows me to refill the pot? Like, was there any time restrictions? There were some. So actually, even to go a little bit further, because this, if this is useful, like it was, it was very useful for me. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't talk about how they manage money. There were actually two funds that I, that I funded. One is I funded 18 months of our family's mm-hmm. expenses. So up to that point, my, our family had been getting paychecks from, from my position at Creative Live and then previously from the company I owned previously. So like there was a, the family had a certain amount of money it took to run it. And I replaced the paycheck that my wife normally got direct deposited that she was able to run the family from with, an, with 18 months of funding inside of a Vanguard fund that basically did a drop every month to replace the amount that she was getting from my paycheck. Yeah. Um, and, and part of the reasoning for that is, and I did this, I did this, in my small business, I've done this at many stages of my life. I need to separate risk in business from risk in family. Any bad decisions I make in the business that affects our income will not hit my family for 18 months. So I have always got this 18 month run to basically be able to repair mistakes, recover, do something else. And then ideally, periodically, I just need to refill that family fund. So I had a family fund that was enough to fund our family for 18 months. And then I had a, a investment fund that was enough to be able to place five $50,000 bets. Yeah. Wow. So it's like a Vanguard. Are you like doing like some S&P or index fund or whatever to, to take certain percentages out per month? And then you would potentially refund it after the 18 months or, or reassess. It, yeah, or, or or refunded periodically as we went along. Nice. And and honestly, it, I because this was short term funds, it was it was in a you know in a cash fund account. Oh, it that makes sense. Like, I was not not risky. Yeah, it, I I didn't that money needed to be protected from risk, and so I even I kept looking at it and thinking, am I doing am I doing the right thing with this? But but I will say, in terms of investment payoff, the times that we have protected our family whether it has been the most fiscally prudent decision from an investment standpoint has allowed me to make risks that have paid off for the family. Right. Yeah. Even jumping back, like this wasn't the first time I had done this. I can give an example of a terrible financial strategy that worked this way for me (laughs) in, in my, in my early business, in my early business, when life was very financially chaotic would be a fair way to say it, you know, like, like money would come and money would go in different droves. There wasn't a steady rhythm. I hadn't figured out a lot of things. I was most afraid of losing our house and I ended up prepaying the mortgage because I, I found that if you paid the mortgage an entire payment ahead and didn't ask them to put it against principal, which is a bad financial call. But for me, it meant that the due date for the next bill went forward one month. And what I did is I eventually over about three or four years got my, my mortgage prepaid by about a year. So that same thing, if, if there were problems inside of my business, they didn't hit the family for a period of time, which, which for me was a necessity so that I could 
go into risky situations in the business and not feel like my entire life was at risk. Right. Yeah. You, you buy yourself some time to be a little proactive for what could come. I, I love that. I, I, I think of it the same way where like with the companies, like I always seem to have this coming to the family. And then with this is where I can be a little bit riskier, but I love how you actually like separated it out. But I think that framework's helpful for anybody, especially someone looking to go do their own thing, putting those like guardrails in place. Cause I, I need that. Absolutely. There's a lot to be said for being able to survive failure and, and, Rather than being the first mover, to being able to be the last mover in an opportunity is huge. Yeah, that's so true. People don't say that. And so you've got this 250K set aside. You're like, all right, let's go see what we can do. And then I'd love to hear about how Kaiser Fit kind of falls into this. Yeah, absolutely. So Kaiser Fit, so that was in 2016. Kaiser Fit, I actually got a chance to be connected to in 2019. So, so this is after we, there's a little bit of track record. We've had a couple other companies spin up and, and I've replenished that fund a couple of times. So previous to that, I had been working in the photography space a lot. And in the photography space, there was about a two to 4 million person potential audience that we could identify that could potentially be customers of ours, which is large. And we were really good at marketing to that, but that is different from like tens, millions, hundreds, million. Like, like I, I was very envious of people who were creating products for larger, less niche products. And I was really like food and fitness were two things that were really on my plate that I was really interested in. And to clarify, when you say, so just so people know, like we're talking about photographer, that means like potential photographers that would buy this course that you would be doing. The 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 TAM, the total addressable market, isn't as big as like, hey, fitness, because that TAM is, you know, probably hundreds of millions. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, and in the case of, of the, the photography platform that we were, that we were teaching, it was for professional photographers. This wasn't amateur photographers. This were, you know, there was, there was a limited number of people that were in that space. Whereas in fitness, it's virtually unlimited. About 2018, I started calling um, a lot of the people that I had created content with in the past and effectively thought, okay, one of the things I need to do is spin up more opportunity. And I basically told all the producers that I had worked with that I really trusted if you have someone or something that you are, that you really believe in, I would love to fund a proof of concept project for you. So effectively I said, I will just, I will give you $10,000 to go just create a proof of concept around something that you think you would believe in. And then if there, if there's enough momentum there, we could potentially do something. One of those people was Mike Folden, who is one of the best fitness-based videographers I have ever worked with. He is fantastic. And he said, I actually have this um, kettlebell instructor that I really believe in. I'd love to do this. And so in 2018, he filmed a, an online kettlebell program, did all the production. I basically funded it. I, I was in a few calls, but basically Mike kind of drove that. And we spun that up as a proof of concept. And that was the first proof of concept in the fitness space that, that, that we had spun up. You asked about KaisaFit, and because that was actually the first thing. So this, this proof of concept didn't make it to the next stage. It, it did not generate enough momentum, enough opportunity to prove out that this idea was something that we could try to scale and grow. And sorry, but, just to ask about that, because it's so hard yeah. to be decisive and say that your baby's ugly. You know, what, how did you know it wasn't working? Was it obvious and that like you couldn't get customers or you couldn't get customers in a scalable way with paid ads? Like, Anything people can learn from on how you made that decision to to sunset it? 
Uh, well, actually, so the funny thing is, it's not sunset. It's still running. It just it's it it's just in kind of a static place. The, the short version is, from a from a practical standpoint, I was not able to put together a pitch and offer and everything else I needed where I could get brand new customers to convert for less than the cost of their first purchase. So I couldn't have it scale in a cash neutral way, which was one of the things I was looking for. And the instructor really from, from like further conversations, the instructor also didn't really want a life in which his, his brand was going to be scaled. So it really came down to, because because it, it, there's a lot of weight on someone when you are pushing out, pushing out a brand that you're attached to the entire world. And he was, and he, I would say he's more, he was much more a craftsman. He was really, really, really excellent at his job, but he preferred more close relationships than to be shooting for thousands and thousands of fans. Makes sense. And, and, and that was actually a case of, that was a, that was a prototype. That was a, a test that, that didn't go to the next step. But it's still functional. People are still buying that periodically, and and every quarter I send him I send him checks for what has been or a Venmo transfer for all the sales. And I will say, when all the gyms closed at the beginning of COVID, we just gave him 100 percent of all proceeds at that point for all of that, and it allowed him a form of income when he was not able to make it locally, which I think was huge. And in the meantime, I was talking with Mike, and we basically started putting together lists of of influencers, basically saying, "Okay, I really, I'm really interested in what I'm seeing as possible here. This is not the right combination of things." And we started putting together a list of things. And Mike had worked with Kaisa before, so so Kaisa had its online presence. Kaisa Fit. She had about two hundred seventy thousand followers on Instagram. She is she's one of those influencers that you you know. $10,000 a post for promoting on Instagram. So she, she was definitely, she, she made the top, the top 10 or the top 30 list pretty reliably for the, for the biggest influencers in fitness. And honestly, for that, I had wanted to bank a couple smaller influencers and prove results at a lower level before I felt like I was real. I'd really earned the place of being able to like have a conversation with her and pitch her. And I guess almost as a side note, how, how, I mean, how open do you want the kimono on this? Like, where, where, where do you want to go on this? Yeah, I mean, I think just learning from the process, but as much as you can expose on the details is, is great. <laughs> so just revealing, just revealing where I was, I was actually in the process of going through counseling and therapy around exploring whether I had an eating disorder and a brown eating disorders. And at the same time that I was looking at fitness and I was really trying to grapple with the fact that I knew how to make a ton of money in fitness. But I'm not sure that what I knew would sell super easy was necessarily in alignment with the personal work I was doing. And, and, and because the, the short version is the, 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 the shortcut to selling in fitness is you have people feel bad about the bodies they're in and you sell them a workout that promises that they are going to look different and lose weight and all sorts of other things. And I wasn't sure that that was necessarily doing good in the world, even though it would certainly make money, especially on Facebook. So I was also listening to all the different talks and I ended up hearing a talk that Kaisa gave at a big fitness conference and it was really in alignment with this person. So she has a, she had a, a personal mission that was actually to change the way the fitness space worked. And, and at hearing that I ended up saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk to her. And I effectively went in to talk to her and my pitch was not on 
how much money we could make or what or why why she should basically put her brand in my hands or what we could do. It was that I had heard this talk and if she meant what she said in this talk and I, and I listed out the things I, that, that I had heard, if that was true for her, I was really interested in having a conversation with her about helping to grow her business. And if those weren't values that she held, that was like, that was kind of the foundation I wanted to have a conversation from. And I think tactically, I don't think anyone had ever approached her that way before. And just mission wise, um, it really, that, that got us started. That got us started. So that was probably in early 2019. So it's about a year after Mike had filmed the, the kettlebell project. And then we talked for a couple months and we actually officially went into business in June of 2019. And I think I'd mentioned that she had 870,000 followers on Instagram at that point. Uh, most of her revenue was coming from sponsorship, but she had done about $150,000 in digital course sales. She was mission-driven. And the missing pieces that were described in terms of what, what, what we brought really fit for what she needed. And she was, for the first time, ready to partner. So she fit all those criteria, and we fit hers. And it's not often that there's a fit, but when there's a fit. Yeah. And so in June of 2019, that's when we actually launched our first project, product together. So I could talk more about tactically, about basically how we took from that place. But I think the... The, the talk about values and conversation and basically everything else early on, I think is a necessary understanding because one of the things about scaling, and I'm a huge believer in scaling, scaling puts, especially people who have their brands in their own name, it puts them under strain and stress. And there needs to be trust between me and like, like I have to help them walk through a stressful thing and a different way of looking at their own relationship with their business in order to get to the next phase. And that has to be grounded in fundamentals of mission and, and some, some common areas that we agree to believe in. Yeah. I, I think starting the, the partnership on the right, like foundation mm -hmm. is everything. So you have like the same mm -hmm. end goal in mind and the same values. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it sounds like that's all a fit. And now she has this, almost approaching a million person following what is you don't have to get too much into tactics, but I'm just interested. Mm -hmm. So people know, like what is she actually offering? Is it a subscription course? Is it a one-time purchase? Like what's the price point? And then what are you doing to, to really grow it? Absolutely. So first of all, she had, she had done probably about six different offerings prior to us meeting over the, over the previous three years. And a couple of them had been, had been individual products and a couple had been membership. And so we looked at all those. And normally when I come in and partner, normally we film and create new material. So that's normally my approach is basically we create new material. And after talking it out and talking with Mike and just kind of talking, we decided that the best move for a proof of concept was to take three of her existing programs that were already already filmed the the quality was whatever whatever it was but basically the quality was not what we would create together later but it was sufficient to be able to do this and we spent about ten thousand dollars just working on new marketing trailers new videos but all the videos we created were around marketing and not around the actual core delivery and so there were there were there were two products that we decided we were going to do this with one was called in the gym with kaisa which was a gym based program and then there was the Just Move Challenge, which was a home-based fitness program. And then as we were doing this, she had had this experiment that she had thrown out, which was 
a $29, just a warm up video that she had done based around her own mobility program that she had done. And after talking out, we, we agreed to throw that in as just kind of like a wild card. So we were betting that the just move challenge was going to basically be the big thing that was going to sell. We didn't know how the gym was going to do and mobility one, which was this, this kind of throwaway was our pure experiment. So, yeah. And what, what are the price points on that? And I'd love, you, you've mentioned something where you want to do marketing that kind of pays for itself. Like it was the $29 product that, and could you explain what you mean by that? Exactly. So, so the three products, two of them were, were, were priced at $99. So in the gym and just move, cause they were big meaty, uh, Oh, th- these are just individual product products. So, so, and, and by the way, I tend to do my prototypes, not as memberships. I tend to do my prototypes as one-offs because I just had the experience of selling a subscription that doesn't hit critical mass and it's harder to walk away from. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good. Mm-hmm. Or harder to pivot from. Like it's, it's just, it's harder to test market fit with something that has this ongoing thing because we're kind of locked into delivering on a monthly basis what we promised. And then mobility one was a, literally it was like a, it was like a 45 minute video that we sold for $29. And so two $99 products, one $29 product in terms of the initial launch. One of the things I need for my partners is, is I, I oddly, I don't know how to get the first hundred sales. Like I generally don't know how to get the first hundred sales. It's one of the reasons I tend to need to partner with people that have had some success because I need I need a seed. I need someone that kind of knows the language that works, that has an audience. And so basically it was kind of her job to get the first hundred sales. And what I was then doing is fast following on her activities, creating ads, learning everything from that. And basically it was between the first hundred to the next thousand that I started building scaling systems in place. And in, so in the, in the first two months, the results in the first two months were we sold $80,000 of product. They're all just digital products. So it's, it, it's just digital files. What surprised everybody was that 70% of that sales was the Mobility One product. Interesting. This $29 product that we threw in as an experiment, largely just because we had the capacity to film one more trailer, became the product that sold like hotcakes. And the other two never really hit that critical mass that we needed. Like they sold... But they didn't really, they didn't sell beyond the initial audience that, that knew Kaiso was interested in it. Whereas Mobility One, even within the first two months, we were finding that we were able to craft offers that got people to purchase that product who were meeting Kaisa and meeting the product at the same time. Gosh, is it like, how can we add a zero to the mobility product real quick to get the, the value up? That's, that's so interesting. I mean, I believe it, especially if you're running Facebook ads, it's always the last thing you throw in that's a half-baked idea from the intern that crushes it. That's one of the big, that's one of the big kind of philosophical things that I try to talk out with partners early on is a willingness to, to, to let go of control a little bit on some of the things that we do in social media. Basically, we try to break out like the brand into non-negotiable elements and negotiable elements. So there's non-negotiable elements. We're never going to sell a diet program. We are never going to sell, we are never going to promise um, a better, you know, better shoulders, better legs, better other parts as part of the payoff for a workout. That is a non-negotiable and we, we will turn down millions of dollars to hold to that. But we agreed to allow the market to educate us in terms of 
aesthetics on what type of video we want, whether a, a poorly produced video or a, or a better produced video worked better. And actually, the other thing that's crazy about this is the money we spent making really nice videos, a lot of times the things that were over that were doing more converting were poorly, not poorly, but that didn't have the production values. They, they were they were quick handheld iPhone videos that had a good message and they were not as slick and put together as as the really good looking stuff i i believe it um we see it with the ads that we run user generated content performs like the best um so so how are you scaling this and growing this is it on the back of paid on social plus leveraging her platform are, are there other ways because you're going from idea to eighty thousand, and then you're hitting seven figures can, can you talk about that so for me, what I am focused on is I'm focused on she gets the first 100 customers. So she got the first 100 sales. And the one thing that we implemented from the very beginning that I, that I generally implement for most everything I do is a 100% guarantee that we are really aggressive about honoring. Not, not a marketing 100% guarantee, but a aggressive 100% guarantee. And then an aggressive call for re- reviews after you know one week after purchase so almost to the message being review this or ask for a refund like i I don't know that we're ever quite that explicit although i'm always tempted to do it because what i'm trying to learn is i'm trying to learn from those first hundred to a thousand customers is for the people that are delighted i want to use the words that they tell me in the review on why they're delighted i could not agree more it's the best Mm-hmm. copywriting hack. And I love that you force it. We call it like our voice to customer mm-hmm. research, but that's genius. Yeah. And actually, if you look at it, I, I if you look at it, I think we've got 2000 reviews now for Mobility One and they are, I mean, they're, some of them are extraordinary. The, the other piece to that is the refunds. Because what a refund tells me is this is feedback from somebody for whom the promise was desirable and who spent the money. Because the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to take the advice of people that don't buy. I want to take the advice of people who do buy. Because the one thing we get on feedback on the internet is I can spend all day being told why something is never going to sell by people who are never going to buy it. I want to know from people for whom the value was there for them to purchase it based on the promise where did we miss that promise? Why did they spend the money and then ask for that money back? And it is basically those two things. Now that's amazing. So it's getting that feedback, using that to inform growth. Very cool. And I, I want to get to the acquisition that you had, but like what, what else on Kaiser Fit is that, that people could learn from or before we, we get onto your acquisition? Well, okay, so we'll go ahead and jump. Let me jump forward. So we talked about the first two months and the first two months is about learning. I would say after that is about scaling. So by the end of 2019, so six months in, six months in, we had we had generated 480, just shy of a half million dollars in sales. So six months, we made you know half million dollars in sales of these digital goods, and we had spent $250,000 on ad spend. So we're spending about half of our income on ad spend. And the way I focus on ad spend for this is I'm looking for a product that I can exclude all known audiences from. So anybody that that has a relationship with them, us is excluded. And I am looking for the combination of an ad promise along with the credibility of the brand, along with the promise of the landing page that I can convert enough people that I can 
give Facebook between 50 to 60% of the revenue that comes in from that purchase and I get new customers. And so basically what I, what I try to do is I trun, try to run with a positive ROAS off the first purchase and find a combination that lets me spend pretty much unlimited funds. So, and I think on Black Friday that year, I spent actually on Black Friday, we started selling this thing at, at $19. And then just based on the feedback, it was just like better than that. So we actually raised our, we raised the price to $39 for Black Friday. So we raised our rates for Black Friday. And yeah, most people are doing discounts. Well done. And, and sold more because, because these are all people who are having a first time relationship with the brand. So like no one knew what pricing was. And so people understand why this is a big deal is a lot of times when you think of marketing, it's the opposite. Oh, I've got to like warm them up, do brand awareness, work them down the funnel to do a conversion. This is the opposite. It's like when I'm going to a cold audience, I'm going to make money off of them right out of the gate with what could be called a tripwire or something where it's a, an entry point product that's an approachable price, but allows you one to get them to open up their wallet and two, get them into retargeting or to your email drip sequences. So that's, that's really, I mean, any advice, I mean, you get really good advice on the framework for that, but is it key to also have an approachable price point, like under $50? So first of all, for me, it's a little bit of a holy grail. So it's not like I can do this repeatedly. I could not do this for her other two products. So part of it is hunting for that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then when you see it, knowing the, knowing how valuable it is and just exploiting the heck out of it. Yeah. The one thing that's really important, important, I believe to remember about this price point. So I would say the price point is between $9 and $99. So basically there is this nine to $99 price point that you can reasonably expect a portion of your audience to convert on the first exposure. If if their need is very much in alignment with our thing. Because I would say at that price point, people are paying and buying based on their need, not based on our delivery. So right. I've had a lot, I've had a lot of instructors really fixate on whether they need to do six hours of training or short, like, like they're, they're, they're very fixated on what people get after the purchase. But people at that price point, between nine and $99, Actually, what is driving them is almost exclusively their need. So basically, it's their need combined with a price point, and it really almost has no correlation with what we're delivering after the fact. Mm -hmm. In the fitness world, some people deliver just a PDF that has like three pages. Other people deliver, you know, six hours of training material. And neither of those in that price point does the delivery really impact the conversion as much as the, as the target audience's need and mindset? Yeah, yeah. It's above that. When, you start, when, you, when, when people start putting themselves at financial risk, that is where there are other conversations in play. But if it's low enough that that's below the threshold for certain people, then it's, then, then, then it's about their need and it's about very little about us except for what we what we claim we are solving, and, and to some degree, whether we have shown enough proof that we actually do it. Yeah. I mean, that's such good advice. My, my head's kind of spinning on what I want to do for like clients and even for our own stuff with, with that advice on the price point, like selling for their needs. So, there, so we have like 10 minutes left. There's a few different ways we could go. Selfishly, I have some questions to ask you, but... Uh, a very cool big acquisition happened, and we'll have to bring Craig on for part two to talk about it. But a lot of people are like, okay, this is really exciting, what you've done with these influencers to create digital products and to get them at a, a big scale. 
what can I learn from that? What can I apply from that? Because I'm not an influencer with a million followers. I have so I like wrote a book and I've done uh, like an online course. and I've done some teaching. I, I, I really am excited about the content that I have. I don't have a following like that. So if, if you're someone like me or an agency like a growth hit, you know, how should we think about even selling an e-product? Should we not like not fall into that trap and waste our time? Or if we do it, go about it this way? Because this, this is, we wouldn't fit your investment criteria, right? So how would you think about it for growth hit? So I knew you were going to ask me this question. And, and, and whether we do it on air or we do it separately, we're digging deep into this question. I have started my 101 ideas list for growth hit. Oh my gosh, how much do I owe you? I'm excited. You get, I get to be a fan and I get to vicariously watch you, watch you go. Um, so I do have some questions for you. So when I'm looking at this, there's a couple things I'm just using just to kind of initially even like do some quick validation. So the two things I'm looking at is a market sizing and just some general sense on, on how I would view pricing and units for, for, um, for potentially product. Now, this is a little bit early and some this the, a lot of this comes later, but like just in short, when I'm at the very early stages of conceptualizing what a, an e-product might look like, I can sell $100,000 $10 products if I want to make a million. I can sell $10,000 $100 products. I can sell $1,000 $1,000 products. I can sell 100 $10,000 products or I can sell 10 $100,000 products. And those are all you know, those are all things that people do. I will say for me, generally my sweet spot is somewhere between the $100,010 products and the $10,100 products. Like that tends to be like for the things that scale fast for me, those, that tends to be my sweet spot. My, my guess from the outside, just looking at you because you don't have a, because I will, I will say a lot of potential entrepreneurs Take a smaller market opportunity and apply a large market pricing strategy to it and just set themselves up for failure right from the beginning. Interesting. So the first question I have is you've got your own, you've got your own following. You don't have a huge following. So probably if we're looking for success early stages, we're probably somewhere between that $1,000 products or $100, $10,000 products mm. is probably the place that I would probably start conceptualizing. But one thing I want to ask you is, you right now, so Growth Hit is specifically is targeting VC funded companies. What is the market size? What is the market size for VC funded companies? How many are there? That's a great question. I'd love to get into that because it's like VC funded companies and and Shopify clients over a million dollars in sales. And we've like pulled like how many like Shopify plus accounts there are. I can't remember. I'd be lying. It's like. 3,000 or something is like what we can get from the database. So that would be just from that cohort. And then from the VC backed at an A round, I'd have to do the research on that. But you're exactly right. Like that's a potential TAM. I, I would even challenge it this way too. There's a few different even personas where that's the ideal growth hit client. I also think through these different personas of you have the person running marketing at a company, you have the person that aspires to run marketing you also have this person that wants to get into marketing. Cause even the book I wrote, the growth marketers playbook, I actually feel like it's more of people that are like, Hey, I want to get into marketing and up my game. And that's the persona. But I think the, the smart point you're hitting on is the TAM of the Shopify's and the, uh, 
VC back companies, they can pay that 10 grand or that one grand. Whereas as I go to those personas where it's a bigger audience that's out there, they're going to be playing, paying the 10 to $100. Right. So it's like playing that game of who's the persona and what's the right price for them, I guess. Exactly. And, and one of the things as, as I was making my 101 list of ideas, cause this is just brainstorming for me is I basically, one of the things I was doing is I was just giving myself a little bit of space to just conceptualize what would a $10 product in this space look like? What would a hundred thousand dollar product in this space look like? What are some different, you know, VC funded versus angel funded or even pre-funded. So, okay, maybe what are some corollary markets that still tap into this? Because I would say a digital product is probably not going to be a one-to-one match to what growth hit does right now. It is probably going to be a corollary to what uh, growth hit does right now, or potentially a feeder for what growth hit does hit does right now. Or alternatively, you could be creating backend training or systems for other agencies, and and that's where you could potentially, you know, like sell other things. So it's a bunch of different directions that can happen. I I do think there are paths that could get to a million dollar annual run. I would say none of them feel. Hundred percent. I mean, like they, they would all fall into that one in five chance category that I would I would put down to. I would say a one in five. I would, I'd say a twenty percent chance of success on any given idea is probably realistic given what I'm kind of feeling right now. And I tell you what, one in uh, one in five chance is huge percentages for a lottery, for something you're banking on, you know, to like build the business on is less huge. First, that's a great call on like even going to agencies. And one thing I think about is like, what is the byproduct of what we do? We have all these really cool templates for landing pages and ads to like package that up and sell it or like all of our internal processes for for running growth. But it kind of gets to that mobility example you gave. It's you're making me think I should be testing even more ideas just to put them out there to see what resonates if we were to go down this path. Rather than thinking you have to focus on this one perfect thing that's going to be the the rainmaker. It's like allow yourself, even to that point around failure you've made, like be open to trying different things. I, I actually think that's a really great point because if you look, I, I launched three products to test with KaisaFit. I mean, I feel like I'm relatively, I, I am not bad at this. I, I, I have different strengths. I was not able to find a path for two of those three products for two of those three, two of those three products no longer exist in our catalog. Two of those three products, I could not find a way to scale into the market. And if I had started with the thesis that I was going to launch this product and make a million dollars off this product, I don't know that I ever could have done it. Or maybe I could have, I I bet I could have made a million dollars. It might've cost me 3 million, but I bet I could have made a million. million. (laughs) Yeah. Your top line looked great. Yes, the bottom line that might be hurting. Yeah, if if you like, I did I did like come down to one one potential recipe that I kind of liked out of all this. I mean, like, but I would you know, if so, do you want the pitch for the the thing that I think would be interesting? Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, I think what I would look at is, given your background in coaching and just everything you've done, is I think I would look exploring building a pre funding workshop. A the aspirational workshop that basically deals with a a a a, a DIY growth strategy for non funded companies that are attempting to get funded, because there's a lot more of those. They're, they you know I think the average small bill like a lot of them don't have more than twenty five thousand dollars 
cash. Like, like most of them don't have a lot of cash, but they probably could invest between a hundred to a thousand dollars for a process that puts them into some type of mastermind group or some type of group that could get them there. I think that you have through the coaching that you've done your own experience and with what you've done with your clients, I think you can prove credibility in this space. And for me, it feels like it's got a much larger audience. It has, it is not conflicting with your core audience. In fact, if people put those side by side, you're effectively creating a tool for people that can become a potential client of growth hit. And, um, and it allows you to offer a lesser degree of growth promise because these are people that are seeing the real growth coming after they have been funded. You're trying to give them the DIY tools to both start proving out some growth concepts as well as setting that growth on a strategy for funding conversations. All right. This is genius. I, I love the way you pitch this. The reason why I like it is there's so much, so many options out there in marketing growth for courses and books. It's exhausting. I have not heard anybody present it this way. And it so fits into the realm of how many, I get so many questions around this and we have so much thoughts, so many thoughts around it. It's, it's super exciting. So what would I price this at? What would it look like? Is this a hundred dollars? Is this $300? Is that a thousand? I think, and part of this, it depends a little bit how your business is structured. But one of the thoughts I had is you've, you've got, you've got 18 people. You've got, a, you've got a, a large number of people, right? Yeah. 16. Couple things. I probably would create an information product that would be a hundred dollars or less. I'd create an information product that has a hundred dollars or less. And I would play with pricing on that. And I would probably create something like a mentoring or mastermind or some type of coaching. And we could get deeper into coaching. There's ways of like creating some, like not one-on-one coaching, but like large group coaching for people in the $1,000 per, I don't know, year, $1,000 per six month period, like, like play with pricing in that range. And I would explore if it's a way that you can actually use those people's needs as a mentoring tool for your own team. So, so effectively use the teaching of a larger audience as a tool to teach your, to allow your team to start to develop skills. So a lot of companies have a hard time creating their own internal training program because there's no pressure point, but sometimes using a small target audience to teach and then having your own, your own employees lead some of those teaching, whether it's Socratically and just like one-off coaching or whether it's actually creating curriculum, it can start to enforce this idea of pushing knowledge down into, into like lower levels of your company rather than always relying on the senior person. Man, that's genius. The byproduct of our agency's byproduct trains the people of the agency. Wow, that's really good. Okay, so we're running out of time, but I want to talk to you for like an hour more on this because this is a really good idea. I am going to, I like to ask this question to everybody and sorry, you only get like a minute to answer it, but what is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you in your career? You know, when I was 19, I was, I was a trainer at a local printer and Rich Beitlich was the lead sales rep. And we ended up trying to open up some opportunities in Spokane. He took me under his wing. I was this 19 year old kid and he basically took me under his wing, taught me how to sell. I was just this tech kid. And that 
that year of him mentoring and understanding what good honorable sales was and effective sales was has paid off. Like, like my life would not be my life right now if he had not invested that time in me. That's amazing. I, I, cause it's one thing you have this skill on the tech side, but to be able to like bolt on understanding people and sales and conversation and value props is, is everything. So that, that's a really cool story. Well, Craig, where can more people, if they want to hear more from you or what you're doing, where should they go? So the, the center hub would be craigswanson.org. So it's my name with a .org. I have, I keep offering the <laughs> Craig Swanson with the .com to sell to me and, and, and I, I keep adding a zero periodically. So one of these days, maybe I will have enough. I can just throw away that he'll take me up on it, but I'm craigswanson.org. And you can also connect to me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm active there. Oh, 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 oh. And if you're in Seattle, you should absolutely consider looking at the EO Accelerator mm -hmm. Program, which is for, for entrepreneurs that have a $250,000 company of any type that is trying to get up into that million-dollar territory. We have an entire coaching program that I am helping to be the chair of for this coming year at EO. Yeah, it's, EO, I can't say enough good things about it. I probably talk about it too much on this podcast, but I think the Accelerator Program is going to be awesome. And I, I'd love to talk to you more about that as well. Well, cool. Well, Craig, thank you so much for the time. This was a blast. We'll have to do it again. All right. Thank you very much. This was, this was a blast. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.